I draw your attention this morning to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, we'll begin reading at verse 8 and read through the end of the chapter. I know this is a lengthy portion of scripture, but I think it would be good to read this before we begin the message this morning and we will leave off verse 25 most likely from the message and pick that back up next week. So Genesis 2 verse 8. Let us read from God's holy word. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we might come before you with praise and thanksgiving this morning. In light of the fact that you are our creator, you are our covenant God, you are the giver of all blessings, you are the sustainer of all life. 
you are the one who has provided for that which is our greatest need. That we have been given the best gift divine in that the Son of God, God the Son, God incarnate, became flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that this morning we would behold his glory. Lord, what blessings you have given to children of the dust. Give us hearts overflowing with praise this morning as we look to your word. May with humble hearts we see who and what we are. May you lay before us as ever our need and the one that supplies that need, supplies what is needed in light of it, Lord. Be with us this morning. And we thank you and it's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever known someone who was what we have in society often referred to as a has-been? You ever known someone like that? Someone that we could refer to as a has-been? That's probably a poor choice of words that we use to call someone that describes what this is. But the idea is that a person who once was something great in the eyes of man, and then there was some sort of event or some sort of process of events whereby that person or that individual lost this position of greatness that they were in. Thinking back through history, there's a lot of this. There's uh, several instances of this that we could look at. Tragic stories of an elevated man or a woman who was in some position of honor, some position of leadership or fame, who in a single solitary act or series of acts fell from that lofty position and died sad and cast down. Maybe you know someone personally who was in possession of something valuable or something great and squandered what they had possessed. Wealth, maybe. Someone that you know or in our eyes that had some great wealth and along with it, so many amazing opportunities that seem to come to a person that is associated with wealth. Uh, but because of poor choices, they just squandered that wealth. Maybe like the prodigal son that we read of in one of Christ's parables, who squandered with riotous living that early inheritance that he was given when he asked for his share of his wealth, of his inheritance. Maybe gambled it all away or put it, lost it all on dangerous business deals or maybe, maybe they just conti continuously bought these things that had no value and squandered away everything that they had. Maybe it's someone who you know that had a great house. I think of, often of Charleston of the great houses of Charleston. And the last time we were there, we went by one and it was for sale. This beautiful, historic home 
and you go and you look at it and it's just been destroyed. I know of a guy here in Indianapolis area, probably one of the wealthiest men here in Indianapolis. I won't mention him by name, but he has a palace. Palace and marble floors, genuine marble floors in this palace. And he has dogs and the dogs mess on the floor and it's left there to stain and etch the white marble floors. Just squandering away what he has. Marring the beauty of that place that is such an amazing palace to live in. I want you to keep that in mind this morning as we look further in chapter 2 here. It is here that we see the blessings of God which are bountifully bestowed upon Adam as we zoom in to this day six of creation. It's a difficult thing to look at a what, uh, what a great blessing God has bestowed upon the first man and to have knowledge of what is waiting in the wing here in chapter 3. The loss, the innocence lost, the great pollution of death and misery that issues forth from a single solitary sin. If you ever have a question about what our great and holy God thinks about sin, look to two facts that we find in Scripture. Two scenes, in two scenes of Scripture, you will see the true depth of how serious sin is. It is in these two historical facts that we have recorded for us that we obtain a full sense of what sin and the ramifications of sin are. The first one, from one sin, from one single solitary act of rebellion, sin and death come to all men from one sin. And then look to the sacrifice of incarnate God that was necessary for the removal of the guilt and for the removal of the wrath against the sin that we commit that is issued forth from that one single act of rebellion that's on deck here in chapter 3. An infinite rebellion requires a sacrifice of infinite worth. Now, lest we think that we could have done it better, isn't this what we tend to do? If I was Adam, I wouldn't have made that decision. Yeah, you would have. But that's what we tend to think. We see Adam and the blessing that he has bestowed upon him here and say, I would have never made that choice. Let me, let me ask you to ponder the blessings that you have in your own life. Think about those for just a minute. All the blessings that you have in your own life. This God, this creator God, blesses you each moment of your life with air to breathe. And how many times do you use that breath for cursing and for complaining? And for being grumpy 
about that which has been placed before you to do. Well, let's move forward here this morning. Here in Genesis 2.8, we read, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Here we are made known, it's made known to us, that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God of Israel, created a garden here on the sixth day in a region called Eden in the east. Now this is east in relation to where Moses is when he is recording this for us as he and the children of Israel are wandering through the wilderness in this Sinai region, most likely pointing east of that location to an area which is modern-day Iraq. It would have been called Mesopotamia back in the day. Now, Eden is the region. Eden is not the garden. The garden is technically unnamed, which we call the Garden of Eden. Scripture refers to it as the Garden of Eden because it's the garden that exists within the region that is called Eden. We read that this garden is the location where God puts man, where he places Adam, our first ancestor and our federal head or representative of the whole human race. Well, God has not only made a creation that is good, and we've looked at that earlier, read that there in several times in chapter 1. So God has not only made a creation that is good, and I believe that we can understand that this creation was also beautiful. It was a beautiful creation. But he also made a garden in this region called Eden that is most likely the most beautiful place of any throughout his creation. Do you see the further narrowing here that we have? This focusing in. Not only are we further focused in this second chapter of Genesis on the sixth day, but we're also focused into one location of the earth, which is part of that location. Now we are focused to that one region, the region of Eden. And within that region, we are now focused to the position or the place of this garden that God has created. In verses 9 through 14, we read something of this area here where this garden was located. Look with me at verses 9 through 14. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Here we learn that in this garden where Adam was placed, the Lord God made to spring up in this area every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Here in the garden, God made 
the most beautiful of trees spring to life. Not only were they beautiful, but they were good for bearing fruit that was good to eat. It was good for food. Here we also find the first mention of two specific trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life being in the midst of the garden. And there was a river that watered the garden so that it would sustain life and provide for all of Adam's physical needs. It would water, provide water for him and for the animals that were there in the garden and it would provide water also for the trees that were there to produce fruit for Adam to eat. Well, this river divided and became four rivers and they flowed through a, a rich land, a land full of beauty of God's, the beauty of God's creation. And the beauty and the richness of that creation seems to be somewhat concentrated here. This is a land that has valuable stones, valuable minerals here in this area where God planted the garden. There have been many who have sought to find this location. Uh, we have uh, records going back hundreds and hundreds of years of people searching for this location. But we have no need of finding the location, the modern location of this great paradise that God created this garden. Even if we could discover the exact location of this garden, this precise location of it, we'd be barred from entrance. We'll read about that later. It's enough to know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new paradise of God. That will be unending. Once again, we'll live in a paradise that is altogether very good. So that's enough. What is known and what matters is not the location, but it's the provision of the garden that was made for Adam. This was to be his home, his palace. The palace where he lived and where he worked in this garden. Here our ancestor and representative lacked absolutely nothing to sustain life. Here, naked Adam lacked nothing regarding the physical need for life to be sustained. He was made in the image of God, you remember. He was granted life through the breath of God, through the Spirit of God, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. And he was placed here in this garden paradise, enjoying the presence of his Creator and given dominion over all of God's creatures that God had created. And he is blessed with all manner of beauty and food that is set before him. Truly, this is a palace fit for a prince. Truly a palace fit for a prince. Two things that I want to draw our attention to by way of application from this particular section, uh, both of which relate basically to the same thing. But God placed the tree, first of all, God placed the tree of life in the midst of this garden. This is to show us that the provision of life and all that, the, that we are blessed with 
in the case of our particular text this morning, all Adam is blessed with, that they're centered around the provision provided for us by God himself. He is the center of all that we have and the provider of all that is good. And from Adam's perspective here in the paradise of God, it was all very good, all very good. This reminds me in some way of the way in which Israel camped as they wandered throughout the wilderness. Do you remember that? Do you remember the instruction about how they were to camp? In Numbers 2, 1 through 2, listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. The camp, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And if you look at pictures of this or drawings that are done of the way that we have instruction for them to camp in Scripture, this tent of meeting, the tabernacle, was in the midst of their camp. And all around that camp were the 12 tribes of Israel camped according to their tribes with their standards, and they were facing in to the camp. In that tabernacle was what? The most holy place. And what was that? That was the place where God made his presence known, where God was said to dwell. Camped all around it were God's people to show them that he, that is God, is the center of all things. So God plants the tree of life in the center of the garden. We also, let me back up, can also say that the tree of life is a type or a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who we read in John 1 through 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We also have a single river which watered the garden, making provision for sustaining and watering all that God placed there in the garden and for watering even the trees which we said were provided for Adam's food. Well, we read in Revelation 22 and verses 1 through 2, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. These things you see are pictures. They, they are types, and they flow like a single thread all throughout the scriptures to point us back to the source of that which is good, and that which is life-giving. John 4. Do you remember when Jesus was with the woman at the well? And Jesus answered her, this woman at the well, and he said, if you knew the gift of God. Now, this is the gift that we will be celebrating tomorrow. If you knew the gift of God, 
in who it is that is saying to you, Christ is saying, I am the gift. I am the gift. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's speaking to the God of her father Abraham, her father Isaac, and her father Jacob. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I, give, I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Once again, we have this river in the garden. This paradise of God as a type of the one who is the giver of life. Who is the, give, who, the one who bestows this living water to a thirsty people. This one who is Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 15 we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Here we find that man, the first man, is placed in this garden paradise so that he may keep it and work it. Matthew Henry states something interesting here. He says, man was made out of paradise. For after God had formed him, he put him into the garden. He was made of common clay, not of paradise dust. He then goes on to say that he was out of the garden before he lived in the garden, that he might see that all the comforts of his paradise state were owning to God's free grace. All of grace. God planted him there. He put Adam there. Put him there after the man of dust was created. He had no right to, to this place. He hadn't purchased it. He hadn't made it. It was not his birthright to have this place. Not even been made in the garden. Adam had nothing but that which he received from the hand of his gracious maker. There is no place for boasting even here. The crowning Creature of all creation has no room for boasting. Let this also be a lesson for us who live in a land that may be more blessed than others by what we have available to us here and the freedoms that we have. Unless we think that we are of higher worth, let us remember. It is nothing but the hand of a gracious God 
who has placed us here to work. Planted us in whatever spot we are. We have no right to it. No boasting may be made regarding it. Let the provision of Adam here and being placed in the garden be a lesson for all of us in whatever our lot may be. That we might, might, might we have the same type of attitude that Spafford had when he wrote, whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And I am to be employed. I am to set about the work that God has placed before me. And all thanks are to be given to him. In all things. And here it is that we learn even that work, work itself is a most honorable thing. For Adam was placed here in this garden to work, not to be idle, not to sit in leisure, but he was placed in the garden to work. The Lord God took man, took the man, and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Now the curse has certainly made work more difficult, hasn't it? More, much more labor, laborious to work. Work can be intensive, it can be unpleasant, but work itself is something that existed prior to the fall of man. And it was good, and it was right. Adam was to work in his paradise home, the home in which God had placed him to keep it and to tend it. Before the fall that is rapidly approaching here in our text, there was no hardship in work. There was no wearisome nature to work. It was pleasing and it was good. It is then that we come to verse 16 and 17 of our text. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here we find a great allowance of God to Adam, that every tree of the garden, every tree he may eat, save one small exclusion. He had every tree that was pleasant to his sight and good for food to eat of, a paradise buffet, if you will, set before him and given to him as provision for his hunger and for sustaining his life and for a source of strength for his body. All trees in this garden, all trees were good for food and pleasant to the sight. All of them. Even the one single tree where God placed a prohibition of eating of that tree was also good for food and pleasant to the sight. Isn't that what we read later in Genesis 3? 
in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, even that tree was good. There was not something sinful in the actual fruit of the tree. That's not what the problem was. There was nothing here in the paradise of God, in God's creation at this point, that was not good. Up to this point on the sixth day, we find God as creator and giver of all good things. Yet here in this, these verses, 16 and 17, we find for the first time something additional to learn of God, that he is making himself known to Adam, not only as his creator and benefactor or provider, but also his sovereign ruler and lawgiver. Adam was not placed in the garden so that he might do whatever was the desire of his own heart. We have already read that he was to work, but he was placed there to be under the rule and the authority of God. We learned in chapter 1 that God gave man dominion over all the animals and over all creation. And this is supported elsewhere in Scripture. One instance of it is in Psalm 8, 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Dominion given to Adam over all these things. And here we have a reminder that although man was to have dominion, his dominion was to have limits. There were limits placed upon Adam's dominion. There is one who is higher, one who is greater, a sovereign ruler to whom even Adam the crowning creature of all God's creation must bow. God's rule, his law was minimal. It was a small thing. It was a very small thing. That there was only one tree that he was prohibited from eating from. One of the trees, only this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to remain off limits for food. This was a test of Adam's obedience. Our representative, our head of all mankind, received law, received rule from God. Once again, he may have dominion over the land and over the creatures that God created, and even he, even Adam was even given a command, if we remember back from chapter 1, to have dominion over it and to what? Subdue. Subdue it. Subdue creation. Yet man is still subject to God. From the beginning, God is teaching man that he has absolute and utter sovereignty in all things. Unparalleled authority even over the greatest of his created beings. And so that rule is put before Adam as a test of his submission to his creator and to his God. 
not only does God give him this single prohibition, but he also gives him the penalty for rebelling or transgressing that command. We read that for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see what this tells us of mankind? This was our representative. This was our head. This was our first ancestor who we all came from. Cannot keep a single law of God despite it being a small thing and despite the severest of penalties attached to that one small thing. And then after giving such command to Adam, God further proves once again that he is a gracious benefactor and loving lawgiver by providing something for Adam that Adam didn't even know he had a need of. No knowledge of his need. And what's more, God will not only provide this for him, but he will set it up so that he shows man his need prior to supplying that which fills his need. Isn't it interesting the way that God works? Showing us our need and then providing us the solution? Isn't that interesting? Genesis 2.18 then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. After all that we've read so far here in Genesis, we have yet to come across something that is not good. It is here that we read the first malediction from Scripture. Everything else has been benediction. It's good. This is the first time we read something that is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. God said, not, not Adam. This is something very important for us to realize. God said, not Adam. God said it is not good that man should be alone. And here it is that God says that he will provide for that which is not good. He will provide a solution. He will make a helper fit for him. This is God's declaration once again of the situation. This is not Adam's. This is God's declaration. It is his sovereign assessment of the situation as he sees it. So it is here that we see now that God will set it up to show Adam his need and to show Adam once again in such a positive way that he, that is God, the creator God, Yahweh Elohim, is the one who is gracious to his creature. He is gracious. Genesis 2, 19 through 20. Now, 
Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam, here in the garden of God, in, e, in, this, in this region of Eden, is presented with all the livestock and birds and the beasts of the field which were in the garden there with him. And God, as it were, parades them in front of Adam to look at them, to study them, to name them. And as Adam is going through all these creatures that he is observing, that God is parading in front of him, and he is naming them. He looks after seeing and naming all these creatures. And he sees by God doing this that he is alone among all the creatures that God has created. Over all creation there is none that is like Adam. Over all of visible creation, there is not a helper fit for Adam. He sees that there are among the kinds of creatures, most likely pairs. He sees all these creatures, yet among all of them, Adam is unique and has no helper. He sees how unlike these lower creatures God has made him. This points us to the uniqueness and the dignity of humanity. There are so many in the world that would rather save a nest of sea turtle eggs than a baby in the womb. There is a uniqueness and a dignity to humanity that is altogether different than anything else. So this points us to the uniqueness and dignity of humanity and to the fact that you can have all that the world has to offer yet not find among all that the world has to offer a true and helpful companion save that which God is about to provide for Adam. So you can lose yourself in your work. You can lose yourself in your wealth. You can lose yourself in the care of the creaturely things in this world. But the completion comes for Adam when he is given his helpmate, Eve. So God shows Adam that for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So God then sets about to make that which is needed for Adam as yet another picture and proof to him that all good and perfect gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights. So the Lord here in Genesis 2, 21 through 23, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man 
And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So here in the sixth day, God creates woman from man. God puts Adam to sleep, a deep sleep, the first surgery in, in all of, of the world is, is right here in Genesis 2. Puts Adam into a deep sleep. If we had time to look at other scriptures and see this this morning, God has done this multiple times in scriptures. Put a man to deep sleep for a specific purpose. Yet for the sake of time, we'll concentrate on the text that is before us this morning. But God then takes a rib. He, he puts Adam into this deep sleep and he opens up Adam's side and he takes out a rib and made it into a woman. When God puts Adam under this divine sleep, this deep sleep, it tells us a couple things. It tells us that he does not consult Adam during the making of this woman. God knows best how and what to make to be a helper for man. And he perfectly designs Eve, the first woman, not of dust as Adam was made, but of that which is from Adam. That Adam might truly be our head and our representative for the whole of human race. There is no power struggle here over to, over about who is the head of mankind. He made Eve differently than he made Adam. He made Eve out of the rib that he took from Adam. There is a beautiful picture, and it's from Matthew Henry, as near as I can tell. It may go back further than Matthew Henry, that we read often in, in wedding ceremonies about God taking the rib from Adam and making a helper fit for him. I won't go into that this morning, but sometime look that up and read it. It is a truly wonderful, biblical way of looking at this. But there is no power struggle. They were not made the same. Adam was made of the dust of the ground and Eve was made out of Adam. It's what Paul tells us later on. Second, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. There was no need for Adam's input here, you see. Adam did not know his need until God showed him his need. So God himself provides the perfect solution to the need without the input of man as he does in creation, he does, my friends, in salvation. God does not need man's input in the new creation. There is no input sought from man in the way in which man should be redeemed. There is a need that God shows us, shows to each and every sinner who is to be saved. And the salvation which he provides in light of that need is truly born out of 
his wisdom and his wisdom alone. No input from man. Here it is that God is first shown to be Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide as Abraham calls him and names a place later on. The Lord will provide. The Lord provides for the need. And then he brings this woman who he provides for Adam. And he brings the woman to Adam. He gives, he presents Adam with his helper, his companion, his bride. So that he might no longer be in need of a helper. He now has been given his corresponding counterpart. That which makes him complete. And we have recorded the first words of Adam. In fact, we have recorded the first words of mankind in all of Scripture. When Adam says, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last, after seeing all of God's creatures parading in front of him, knowing them, naming them, asserting his dominion over them, he now has someone who is a helper for him. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is something unique to the Jewish culture. You or I, in speaking of a relative, would say that they're my blood. The Jews didn't talk like this. They said this is flesh and bone. This is my flesh and bone. This is bone of bone, my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's the way they talked of those who were nearest and dearest to them. Adam is saying that God has provided him his help, his companion, one who is like unto him in being and in kind. And he names her woman, for she was taken out of man. She is given to him to be his after being created out of him. It is then that we have Moses record for us either the voice of God or what God through inspiration, told him to record for us, where God says, therefore, in light of this that has happened, in light of what I've created for man, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Here we have the institution of marriage. And we have the institutor, of marriage declaring what marriage is. This is God's sovereign declaration of what marriage is, and it is the deep well, Hughes says in his commentary, from which is drawn all biblical teaching on the covenant of marriage from this passage in Genesis. I tend to believe that these were the actual words of God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, why? Because this is what Christ tells us in Matthew. 
in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He answered them, that's Jesus answered them, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the Son of God, answers them. Have you not read that he, who's the he that he's talking about? That's God. Who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said. Who said? God said. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Really quickly, and we're not going to take this and run with it for time's sake, but this marriage here, God's declaration of marriage and what marriage is, is between the two genders that God created. Male and female. This is what God created and what is good and right in the eyes of the Creator. A man marries a woman. A man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. After the pattern of his first father and mother right here in Genesis 2. This is God's order and this is right. He who has the authority as creator and sustainer and sovereign of all things has this right to declare this and he does declare this concerning marriage. No matter what level of dominion government has been given, they do not and they cannot supersede the authority of God Almighty. And if they do, judgment will follow. We are seeing that today. A man leaves his father and his mother. Here, he in a symbolic sense turns and leaves their presence, his purpose changes so that he might cleave or hold fast or, or be joined together with his wife. His priority now becomes one of being the head of his wife, the protector, the leader. He loves her as he loves himself. He nourishes her and cherishes her she becomes one with him and they become one flesh. They are of one mind and one body. So joined are they as man and woman, husband and wife, that they are as if they are one body. So why? 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 My dear friends, is this so ordered and done in such a way? Why is it so meticulously detailed for us here in our scripture? There is nothing in scripture that isn't for our benefit. Nothing that isn't profitable. So why? 
These are the questions we must always be asking ourselves. This is God's word. This is God's declaration of himself. Why is he telling us this? Is it so that we understand understand God's plan regarding the way that life comes of life? Procreation? Well, these things are certainly only possible when they are being when they are done in keeping with what God's order is. You must have a man and a woman to create life. But is that all that he's teaching us here? Or is there something more? Do you remember the passage that we read earlier? In our congregation reading from Ephesians 5. Genesis here is even quoted in that scripture that we read earlier. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then what does Paul say? He says in verse 32, this is a mystery. This is, this is profound. This, is, this mystery is profound about a man and a woman. And I am saying, Paul says, that it refers to Christ and the church. Here it is. God created man and woman in the way that he did for many reasons. But this is the chief one. He created them and created marriage, this union between the man and the woman as a pattern for us to adhere to generation after generation for the the purpose. The point is to point us to Jesus Christ. Marriage is a picture of the relationship, the union between Christ and his church, between the head and the body, between the bridegroom and the bride. Christ is the bridegroom joined to his bride, the church. This is it. All of this points us right to the Savior of mankind. Mankind after the fall has a great need, a glaring need, a need that cannot be done away with. A void that cannot be filled by anything that exists in what God has created. Other than what God provides through his direct and absolute provision of himself. It's interesting that the same word for helper that's used here in Genesis of Eve... Is, that's tied to the woman here that is created from Adam is the same word used of God being a helper to his people. In Exodus 18.4 And the name of the other Eleazar for he said the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. It's the same word. God was his helper Supplying the deliverance that was needed. 
1 Samuel 7, 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Psalm 20, verse 2. May, you, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Psalm 121, 1 through 2. We've read this so many times. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Christ tabernacled among us. God incarnate, born of a woman, Eve's seed, the promised seed from Genesis 3, that we might be his flesh and bone. There was no one suitable for Adam, so God made Eve. He made a way, something suitable for him, for his need. And he made a suitable helper of himself for us. I will again quote Hawker. I told you about him last week that wrote the poor man's commentary. He said, but doth not the idea of union in the marriage state in this life awaken a spiritual improvement and call up to the recollection of the true believer in Jesus the sweet thought of our spiritual union with him who hath betrothed his people to himself forever? Oh, what a precious scripture is that. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, 5. Thy maker is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then he says, dearest Jesus, be thou my husband, shepherd, and friend. And then he goes on just a little bit later to say, reader, do not overlook the very gracious doctrine of the 20th verse of Genesis chapter 2. There was not found an helpmeet for Adam. No, there is not. There cannot be in any or in all the creatures of God's providence an helpmeet. And though the Lord God brought the woman to our first father as a suitable helpmeet for the body, yet it is the seed of the woman alone which can become an helpmeet. For the soul. Dearest Jesus, be thou my help, my hope, and my portion forever. My friends, do you not see God through the work of the Holy Spirit showing us our need as He did Adam? There is nothing in creation that will be your helper save that which God himself supplies. He himself is the divine remedy. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you that we have been joined in, in union to Christ, our head. 
at the church, your people, redeemed sinners, might be blessed with union to Christ. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that our Savior came, tabernacled among us, came in the form of human flesh to be our Savior. Lord, we thank you. Be with us throughout this week, Lord. May we be truly mindful of what it is that we celebrate this time of year. May our hearts be overflowing with thanksgiving and praise for the gift of the Son of God to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.